Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to the last episode of Season 3 of the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Laurel Beversdorf, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Sarah Court. Hello. It's, it's 2023. We In February, we were in Yalapa, and mm. we were doing Season 2, and that's when we cooked up our bone density course idea. I mean, I think we were like, it was well underway, and we were like, let's, uh, let's start podcasting about bone density and, and barbells and... And it and it really got going in Yalapa, and now, um, it, no July we were in LA together, and we did most of the episodes for season three uh, in in LA in July, and now it is October, and this is the last episode of season three, which we're doing just a couple weeks before this will air, which is unusual, maybe just two weeks, right? And uh, and and a lot has happened, Sarah. So. Uh, <laughs> We, we launched Bone Density course, Lift for Longevity. We were, uh, you know, we were thinking it was going to do pretty well. And it, and it like ended up just doing Our minds. so much better than we thought. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, I mean, it's super, from my perspective, it's, you know, we were like, okay, fingers crossed. We hope we get X, you know, 40 people is sort of what we were thinking we might get. Yeah, and yeah, we've, yeah. More, we've, du- we've more than doubled that. And, and I think you know, apart from the like, thank God this thing is working because it's a big, uh, it's a bit of a risk. You know, we're like, we think people are into this. We're getting the sense. We're testing the groundwater. We're getting the vibe. We put this whole thing together and then we're like, are you into it? <laughs> and we had no proof of concept really. Like we, no, we didn't do what everyone tells you to do, which is like, ask your audience if they want the course. We were like, no, they, they want it. We're just going <laughs> to we're just going to make it for them. And, you know, I mean, it is, it, there's, it's exciting in two ways to me. It's exciting. Yes. That it was not a complete garbage can failure because that would have been a really big bummer. And we would have been like, yeah. okay, back to the drawing board. But right. it's also very exciting to me that there are so many women who are in the middle period of their life who feel strongly enough about the need to take care of their bodies and, and the fact that for the most part, you know, the, the study of, me- of movement and the medical community just kind of start ignoring us once we are, you know, close to or no longer childbearing age. Uh, and it's just, I love the, that all these women have just been like, you know what, I'm going to take all of this into my own hands and I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to take care of my future health. And you know, F the patriarchy, essentially. I see this as like 80 women saying F the patriarchy and it makes me very, very happy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, we were, we were like, okay, remember when we started creating this course and we were like, all right, maybe we should make, you know, it, it, we were, we were like, let's make some 
some options for people who have dumbbells and kettlebells and oh let's let's have a landmine and um let's have all this stuff and like we started to create the outline and we were like we don't want to do this <laughs> i think basically we were like this is an unholy nightmare <laughs> we, there, it's too complicated like, yeah, yeah we were like there's just too many moving parts it's too complicated we were like the simple we really were excited about the simplicity of barbells. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron because barbells in people's minds, unfortunately, seem complicated and dangerous and unwieldy and inaccessible. And that's really largely what we've spent this entire year kind of bust, myth busting around, right? Is that yeah. barbells are yeah. actually not any of those things. And we were just really excited about this idea of doing barbells as a way to really simplify our offering so that we could distill our offering into something much more potent, right? Which is yes. like not everything in the kitchen sink. No, it's barbells. It's lifting heavy. It's not pink dumbbells. It's the real deal. And yeah. people were into it, right? I, they were confused about what we're offering. And I think that's that's largely why we were so successful. We were just very clear about what this is, you know? Yeah. And what it isn't. And, and also by being so specific about we're using barbells and there are some people who are joining who are like, I'm going to work my way up, which is yeah. totally appropriate and fine. But the idea, the fact that we were like, no, 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 <laughs> get in girls. We're going shopping or whatever that meme is from uh, <laughs> mean girls. Um, get in women. We're lifting barbells. You know, I mean, it's, right. it's, I think that really appealed to a lot of people and, and, I mean, we haven't seen any other course that's doing what we're doing. No, at all. No, so no, I think that also made all. it. I think that also made it appealing to people because they're like, "This is different. This is not just another program that's like teaching me. I already know how to lift medium heavy things. You know, it's like this is. I'm going to acquire a totally different skill. Yep, absolutely. So thank you to everyone who's signed up. I think we have uh, almost ninety people at this we point. Do. So um, also thank you to everyone who has left reviews. Um, we've been getting some really good ones and we've been reading the positive ones on air. And we're going to do something a little different this episode, Sarah. We're going to read our only negative <laughs> review, but it's very special. It's very special. I actually, it's one of my favorites. It's one of it's my favorite entertaining. Reviews. Yes. Because um, there's three reasons. Number one, it's our first negative one on Apple. I don't know what everyone is saying on the other platforms because I'm only on Apple podcast and it's not one star. It's two stars. <laughs> and it was amended that's my favorite part <laughs> so can you read it sarah oh yeah absolutely so okay the original review was this too much chit chat at the beginning i'm five to six minutes into the podcast and it's just boring back and forth non-relevant information i prefer to the point relevant information in an information overloaded world please just get to the points I I, it, I love that so much. And then, I don't know what caused them to amend it. You and I both were like, bwah, ha, 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 ha. And we, I think we, I think I posted it on social media, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that's why they amended it. But then they, like maybe a couple days later, they didn't add more stars. It's still only two stars. <laughs> but they wrote, I would like to add to my original review. They are funny and give very good information once they get into the subject matter. <laughs> subject matter. I mean, I just, I think that is just so funny because, um, you know, they're, they're obviously this person just wants the, the, the they, they want the cold, hard, like content, right? Oh, yeah. They don't, 
and so, but I feel like, and tell me what you think. Like, I feel like it's it's hard to just digest content, f- like when it's it's not like contextualized within like the human being sharing it and like our point of view. And so, I think a lot of our banter is just help people kind of get a feel for who we are on multiple planes, right? Not just like the let's talk about movement science plane, right? Or let's talk about like how messed up the fitness industry is right now plane, but rather like just goofy Laurel and Sarah, you know, and like our relationship and then like our relationship to the movement fields we operate within and then all the funny commentary around that. And then, okay, here's what we're talking about today. I feel like that really kind of gives it more meaning, but I mean, I'm biased, right? Obviously I think (laughs) our banter is top shelf. We definitely, there's no bottom shelf banter going on here. This is top shelf primo. This is not a store brand. This is brand name banter. But what I wanted to say about it, I I mean, I too think we're hilarious, but of course I would. But what I, I have two thoughts. I do right. One is, is sort of agreeing with you thought, which is I remember when I was in Glendale Community College doing my college level prerequisite biology, something, I think human anatomy, biology class, one of the, one of the classes. And I, there's this one teacher from there that I will never, ever forget because what he did that was so good, it was exactly what you were talking about, Laurel. He contextualized it. Like he would, he would talk about like being the layers, how there's so much, the dermis on the bottom of your foot is so incredibly thick. And then he, he illustrated it with a story. And I will never forget that story. It was a very dramatic story, but it also reminded me that the, about how like the dermis on the bottom of your foot is very thick. Uh So in the sense of giving the facts context, I think that's important. But then the other thing that I want to say is, you know, we do faff and I, I don't know if I'm the bigger faffer between the two of us, but I definitely, it's kind of just how my brain works. Like I'm always making weird little dumb connections and sometimes I share them and Most of the time I shouldn't share them, so I don't. But I would also say, if you're someone who's listening and you're like, you know what, I do like these guys, but I kind of agree with that review. All you need to do is just like fast forward the first eight minutes of the show. And then you definitely will be a lot closer to the facts and the point if you don't want to listen to the beginning. I think that's fine. Don't you? Like, you don't have to listen to this if you don't want to. Just hit the 15 seconds forwards like a bunch of times. I think most people know that, so that which is why I'm, <laughs> I'm like. Confused. But you'd be surprised. You think most people would know that, but uh, I don't know. Maybe they oh, don't. The, the other thing is, I was like, okay, I'm going to critique the critique. I prefer to the point relevant information in an information overloaded world. It's like, well, if the in, if the world is information overloaded, wouldn't you prefer a little faff now and again? I mean, like, I would, let's, but. Let's just joke a little bit then, right? Like, Listen, you can't make everybody happy. You can't. That's why I love that this person, I'm going to tell you what I really think. Thank yeah, you. That's awesome. Respect. Let's get some more of those. Yeah. All right. On to our topic today. Certifications. Specifically, certifications for teachers of yoga, Pilates, kettlebells, barbells, animal flow, gyrotonics, yoga tune-up, CrossFit, personal trainers, FRC mobility specialists, just to name a few, which for the purpose of succinctness, we will refer to in this episode as movement teaching certifications or certs for movement teaching professionals. Okay. So 
certs, certifications, right? Typically when a continuing ed or con ed offering is a certification versus a con ed offering that is instead just a weekend of workshops or a training or a class that doesn't certify you, some kind of learning opportunity like that. No certification attached. With certifications, there is a learning opportunity after which you can opt in to receive some kind of official permission to formally or publicly refer to yourself as such and such, meaning the brand name, certified teacher. And in this case, the such and such, right, the brand name, is that movement system or that company that has quote unquote certified you. Now, there's also often some kind of a test associated with receiving the certification, and it's also not uncommon to have to pay a fee to receive this permission or even a recurring fee annually to maintain a quote active certification. These certifications can take place in time periods as short as a day, a weekend, a week, or even months. Now, the purpose of this episode is to critically appraise the role of movement teacher certifications and what they might add or detract when compared to non-certifying con ed or continuing education opportunities. So I named some popular certifications above, but what are some non-certifying con ed opportunities, Sarah? Well, in the world of movement teachers, I mean... Not anything that is that is named as such, particularly, but like that I that I know of. But you can take workshops with like your favorite teacher. That's to me, that's a really great con ed opportunity that you're not going to get a certification from. Or just take your take different teachers. Just taking class is always mm-hmm. a con ed opportunity, right? But it seems to me, and you can you can fill me in. This might just be me not knowing enough about this anymore. It seems to me that most con ed opportunities, specifically in the movement teacher world, not in the PT world. It's very, very different in the PT world. In the movement world, it seems like most of them are certifications and either it's a hard, it's, it's hard to say it's sort of like a chicken egg thing. Like, are they certifications because that's what people want or are they certifications? And then people have decided that certifications are what they want. Right. All right. So, okay. So I can actually think of a very top of mind, non-certifying offering at the moment, which is the Bonapity course. (laughs) Well, I didn't know you were going to promo our course. You've been podcasting with me (laughs) for three seasons. (laughs) No, I'm... (laughs) You didn't know I was going to promo our course. (laughs) Well, our course has, has... The reason I said that is our course for this year has closed. People cannot join anymore. But that's not to to say that they shouldn't be thinking about it for next year. Well, the whole, I think the whole inspiration from my end to create the outline for this was because we did have several people ask us if it was a certification. Right. The bone density course was a certification. Um, Also, my my yoga with resistance bands teacher training is not a certification. Mm. And and there's lots of... um, Trina's weekend of workshops, creativity meets science. Like she's not a cert- she doesn't certify anyone. There's lots of opportunities like that out there. So yeah, I guess like the whole impetus for this episode was really to try to look at what people think they're getting from a certification, and then maybe also what they're actually getting from a certification from a movement teaching certification. All right, 
Now, we're, we're definitely, definitely not going to go into the details of each of the different certs that I named specifically. Personally, I've heard really good things about most of them and some pretty shady things about a, a few of them, but that's for another episode. We're not going to review any content. Said con- no, not at all. Ra- rather, it's just, I thought we were just dishing dirt this episode. No, I, was already, I, got, I got my popcorn. You know, no. we're not. <laughs> we're not doing that. We're rather, through the unfolding of our conversation together, Sarah and I, we've also received some insights from folks in the movement teaching industry over email and social media. We're going to attempt to critically appraise the role and value of certifications in an unregulated industry, like the yoga and fitness industries we're talking about here, the movement professional industry, right? And we're going to think critically about what role certifications appear to play and then what role they might actually play. And our central questions for this discussion are, number one, are certifications in the unregulated movement industry a means by which to ensure quality, control, and accountability like they are, or their equivalents are, in regulated industries, right? Do they function the way that permits, licensures, and things like that in a a regulated industry function? And if not, if they don't function that way in an unregulated industry, what purpose are they serving then? Okay. And then number two, oftentimes certifications, quote, test you at the end. And these tests vary. And the question we're going to pose is like, are these tests measuring what is meaningful and important to measure when evaluating movement teaching? Or are they simply measuring what is easy to measure? and thereby giving the appearance of measuring something meaningful. All right, and then number three, what are some of the obvious and hidden drawbacks of certifications? And then number four, what might some of the actual benefits of certifications in the movement industry be? Okay, so Sarah, I think many assume certifications play a similar role for movement professionals as licenses, permits, and certifications play for professionals in regulated industries like healthcare. That's the industry you operate within as a PT. The public teaching sector. My husband was a public school teacher. Aviation, right? Do they? The short answer is no. The long answer is I think people feel like they do and that's why they like them. Right. But in a regulated industry like mine, first of all, to get, you have to go through, I mean, depending on the thing, but you have to go through a very long school process to begin with, like very long. For physical therapy, to get the doctorate degree, it's three years of graduate school. Uh, some teaching is more, probably five. Or there's, And you know, if I wanted to, I could get a PhD, and that would be five more years of school before I did that. So it's the, the time frame. first of all, is way more serious. And, and it's much longer because there's much, much more that you're having to learn because you have to then get a license. And in the United States, your license uh, for, for PT, I, I can't speak for anything else, but you have to have a state licensure. So if I moved, for example, to another state, I would not be licensed to practice physical therapy in that state. I would have to pass that state's exam in order to have a license to work in that state. Yeah, it's similar and, with public school teaching as well. Like teacher certifications are issued by state. Yeah, Yeah, I think a lot of things are. And there's also a very involved ethics and moral code that you must abide by. And if you do not, you could lose your license and you will not be practicing physical therapy or whatever you're practicing again. Like Mm -hmm. the stakes are really, really high 
because we're dealing, I mean, in my industry, we're dealing with health. We're dealing with people's bodies. You have to, you have to take on a level of responsibility that you do not have to take on as a movement teacher. It's just, you just don't, you know? So that's, that's sort of in a nutshell, the, the big differences that I, that I see, the sort of macro big differences. Right on. I'm going to be super transparent right off the bat and share my bias in creating the outline for this episode, which is that from my perspective, and I know I'm not alone, certifications in the movement world function more so to benefit the entrepreneur, the brand, or the company behind the particular movement system certification, and they don't function how they do primarily in regulated industries such as self, such as healthcare, which is a, um, you know, really to benefit the consumers by ensuring quality control and consumer protection because there's accountability, right? You can lose your license. Yeah. You can um, also fail out of school and or fail the exam. Right. And a lot of certifications in the movement world, I, and we can speak more about this later, but we I <laughs> did not see anybody failing. Right. Even right. if maybe they should have. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And we'll talk about why that is. So um, I also want to say, like, I'm not anti-business. Sarah, are you anti-business? Hells no. No. And we're not against marketing. We're not against branding. Um, I'm also not pro-regulation, which is largely wh where certifying entities come into play in regulated industries, right, is to regulate some way of doing business to make it safer, probably, right, for the consumer. I'm not pro-regulation of the movement world. I'm not at all. Um, I, I want to say I'm, I, you know, I'm not against all these things that I just said, and I'm not pro-regulation. I, I don't think that the movement industry, the movement teaching industry, if we're just going to call it that, right, should be regulated by the government. Um, I think there's p potentially some good that could come from some oversight, and and maybe most notably as a means by which to move it more into the public sector, somehow make it more accessible. Um, but basically, the decision to regulate or not regulate an industry depends largely on public interest and safety concerns. Okay, that's why industries get regulated because the public wants it regulated because there's major safety concerns. And up until now, it appears that there has just not been public in interest to regulate yoga, fitness, movement of any kind, perhaps because mountains of research show that it's actually very safe to exercise. The benefits far outweigh the risks as opposed to seeing doctors who are not actually doctors to treat your illness or getting in flights with pilots who have not actually been properly trained, you know, that that's dangerous. We don't want it that. Happening. <laughs> you sure don't. You sure don't. And the yeah. other thing I was going to say is, you know, how do you regulate exercise? How do you regulate movement? We're all doing it all day long. It's so much different than like, I am going to this clinic. I have an appointment with this doctor. There are formal medical forms that I have signed out, signed up to be here. You know, I, it's just, it's just a completely different thing to just walk into a class and take it. You know, the only thing that you have to have is money to take the class. Right. So there's, it's just such a different functioning world when you say that, you know, there hasn't been public interest in regulating it, I, I would be surprised if people even thought that they could, you know, I don't think it's a thought that's, that's crossing people's minds. Like, you know what, we should really get this, you know, hit class regulated or something. <laughs> I think people in, um, at, at least in the yoga industry are really confused about what Yoga Alliance's role is in the yoga industry. And I think a lot of them are confused 
because they seem to think that yoga lines is some type of regulating body when it's not, which we're also going to talk about. Anyway, all right. So exercise is safe. There are many benefits to movement being unregulated, in my opinion. I think that fewer barriers to people entering this space with their movement offerings, fewer gatekeepers to that, you know, with people coming into the space, like I'm going to teach um, hula hoop salsa dancing or whatever. It's like, great, go for it. No one's going to try to stop you. Do it. Personally, I think that's great. And I don't think someone needs, you know, extensive education or any education, frankly, to be an incredible movement teacher. Like you don't need a bachelor's degree to be a movement teacher. You don't need a master's degree. Certainly not. You know, exercise is so safe. I think someone could be a highly effective movement teacher of any kind and take exactly zero continuing ed as it is traditionally thought of, exactly zero trainings, seminars, workshops, and certifications. And in fact, a long time ago when people started teaching yoga, they didn't take trainings to do that. They just studied with the teacher. And then eventually that yoga teacher was like, hey, you should teach. And I'm sure that it's been that way across all of these different movement modes, right? Exactly. It's the the apprenticeship model. It's one of the best ways to learn to do something. It's one of the best ways to adopt a skill set and become a a master of something, right? Absolutely. Um, Sarah, before we get into it, let's compare regulated versus unregulated industries. Just Just to like really clarify what are the differences between a regulated industry versus an unregulated industry so that we're all on the same page about how certifications function and also like what yoga alliance's role is because we will talk about that a little bit um how how certifications function differently in these industries depending on if they're regulated or unregulated all right so share with us some of the, the biggest differences here all right so the biggest difference is we sort of touched on this earlier but regulated industries have government oversight meaning there are actual laws and regulations and industries that both monitor and control it. So for example, in my industry, in the physical therapy world, there is the physical therapy PTBC board of certification. I think that's what it stands for. There's like the national one. And then there's the like California only board. And like, for example, my, my license is up in November and I have to pay them some money, (laughs) but also I have to make sure that I have taken enough of my continuing education that I'm supposed to take so that in case they ask me about it, I have proof, right? So there's all that kind of stuff. Unregulated doesn't have that. There's not really any government oversight as much as it's just sort of like the equivalent of of a bunch of Yelp reviews, essentially, right? So what's what's everybody into? What's the sort of tide turning towards with the people that I teach yoga with? Or some groups are more into this kind of yoga, and they're gonna practice that. And some people are more into that. Some people are teaching really classical Pilates, and they do not deviate. Other people have taken Pilates and and just exploded it into a bunch of different kinds of things um, that expand on what the original uh, style was. Same with movement. I mean, I used to teach for for Equinox and all the time there would be like some new, I remember one time there was some new class where they were using like weighted uh, drum sticks, like, and it was like, you were just drumming all over the place or something. And I was like, that seems kind of cool, but there was no government oversight involved in the creation of that class, right? That was just like one of the things that Equinox does, which is they're, they're constantly trying to create new content for their members to keep them excited and think that they're like on the cutting edge of like what's happening in the movement world. So as a business, like an Equinox is a business, they have so much flexibility 
in deciding how to run their business. Like they can offer any class they want. They can hire or fire, you know, whoever they want. When you're in a regulated industry, like the one that I'm in, there's nothing popular about it. It's not like, Ooh, everyone's super into hot yoga. Let's go take it. It's like, it's not like, you know, Oh, everyone this month is super into physical therapy. Let's all go to physical therapy. (laughs) Right. It just sort of (laughs) exists. It's humming along in the background. So it's got nothing to do with popularity. And, you know, we see, it's funny in, in this industry, we see ebbs and flows in terms of the number of people that we like the number of people that would be on my schedule any given week has a lot more to do with the rest of people's lives. Like, is it summer and the kids are out of school and everyone's on vacation? Is it September and all the kids are going back to school and all the parents are like, ah, and like are stressed out and can't make it to PT that week. Like it's got much more to do with just how people are living their lives. than it has to do with the, the quote unquote popularity or newness or, or interest market interest, because it's about injury for the most part. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's not a marketable I mean, people use it as a marketing tool, but it's not like if you're injured, you're injured. It's not like, oh, it's really trendy to be injured this month. So I'm going to fall down (laughs) on my shoulder or something, you know, (laughs) and then can you imagine that'd be hilarious. And then, you know, I talked about this a little bit as well, but like in terms of becoming a PT, there is a very high barrier, like in PT school, the school that I went to, and I think most of them do this, you had to pass every single class in order to be allowed to take the next semester of classes. And if you didn't, you were rolled out. It happened to a friend of mine. You would be rolled out. You would have to wait a year. And then you would have to take that class that you failed again, now with the cohort one year younger than you. And then you join their cohort and you finish. So it is not for the faint of heart. And it is seriously minded. And at the end of it, you take this really gnarly exam that I thought I did so poorly on. I was, I was positive that I failed it because it was so hard. I went out and got wasted with my friend at like one o'clock in the afternoon. Cause I was like, well, that that's the end of that. I guess I'm just going to have to wait until the exam comes up again. Like you have to take the exam. People take it multiple times to pass, you know? So all of this is, is very time consuming. It's costly. Um, and you know, there's also a, a lot of, like I was saying, there's a lot of continuing education requirement. Like I just had to go do my CPR again because you have to do it every couple of years uh, in order to to maintain my license. I have to take classes on any on laws and regulations in case anything has changed. I have to take a certain amount of continuing education to maintain my license. And that's just not the case for, it is the case in some um, movement styles, I would say, but it's not the case in all, it's not a blanket truth across the board. Right. Um, yeah. The, there's, there's, there's some, there's some personal trainer certifications do require a certain number of continuing education credits and also CPR AED being updated uh, every two years, I believe. Um, Yoga Alliance uh, has a continuing education credit requirement, but Yoga Alliance is not a certifying body. It's a, it's a registry. Um, and so, and they actually accept, they accept continuing education, credits from non-certifying bodies, right? Yoga Alliance does. So yeah. Um, and then, and so like, yeah, so the, the barriers to entry are much lower in the movement world and also in startups and, and other public sector businesses where uh, they just don't face the same regulatory hurdles as regulated industries do. Um, you know, if, but here's, here's an example, right? So right now we're asking, you know, should we actually be regulating technology more? 
right in this country. We're seriously asking if maybe we should be regulating social media more. If we should get ahead of AI. Um, and that's because we're finding now through the data that like these can cause considerable harm. So now public industry, public interest is growing for regulation of tech more so than before. So it's just another example of how whether or not something is regulated or not really always kind of boils down to safety and human rights and things like that. So, all right. So whereas in a regulated industry, Sarah's in healthcare, public education, my husband's in, was in public education, um, typically something like a certification permit license would function to ensure quality control in service of consumer or user protection of some kind. That is its primary function. In an unregulated industry, yoga, fitness, mostly this just functions, I think, as a way to influence market forces. It's a business decision. It's a marketing device. It's used to enhance perceived value. A lot of times, this perceived value is sold as safety, but keep in mind, in an unregulated industry, you can sell safety without ever having to guarantee it. Also keep in mind that exercise is very, very safe. Okay? So I think the primary role certs play in an unregulated industry like yoga, fitness, is really as a marketing device, as a way to ensure brand recognition. All right. Another thought, this gets to what I see as a root cause of why so many marketing strategies revolve around fear-mongering movement, okay, is that fear sells. If I can make you believe a certain way of moving, let's say CrossFit, okay, CrossFit is often held up as this like really dangerous way of moving, right? If I can make you think, or yoga, God, yoga is almost worse than CrossFit. Yoga is so dangerous, right? If I can make you believe that a certain way of moving or a whole exercise mode is inherently dangerous, I can then more easily sell you my certification, Yes. Where you believe that you are going to be certified to do something safely or safely, or my, my favorite word is functionally. <laughs> you learn to do it functionally. Those are, I mean, that's a, the safety one is, I think, a really big, um, it's an eye catching word. Right. Because everyone's worried about hurting themselves or, or, you know, hurting a student. And, there's been so much, I mean, you know, what's the thing on the evening news? If it bleeds, it leads, right? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So negativity bias, right? Yeah. So, so we want to, we want the reassurance that this certification that we're about to take is uh, not only that it is safe, but the, the, what it's sort of playing into is like what you've been doing so far maybe isn't safe, but right. come with us and we're going to show you the yeah. safe way to do things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like whole movement modes will be developed, birthed out of this idea that like this mode is dangerous. Therefore, this new mode is safe. Functional is often the word that's used. <laughs> yes, this this variation, right? Because, and I think the the reason why that word is used is for something like yoga, for example. It's hard to argue that there is, you know, if if we're taking the word functional to mean applicable to your typical movements in your day or like everyone gets really excited about how a squat is really functional because it's like getting in and out of a chair which is true you know it's it's a stretch to say that pinchamayurasana in yoga like forearm stand is a functional pose right unless you clean the floor with your face like i don't know why i would 
what the function in my, the rest of my life is to be able to do well, something like that. Here's, here's the thing. A, a movement doesn't need to look like a quotidian movement to prepare you for that movement. Like you, you could get good at getting up out of a chair by doing other exercises on machines at the gym. Like you, Absolutely. you have to squat to be able to get up out of a chair because there's strength has so much transfer to many different positions that you could be in where you need to be strong in those particular muscle groups. So Pinchamayarasana is functional in my opinion. It's a fab, fabulous way to strengthen your triceps. But I would, argue that the, I would argue that the reason why people don't, the reason why the word functional has this kind of like uh, marketing appeal to it is because it's easy to look at something like Pinchamayarasana or what's the one where you're standing, you've got your one leg up and your arms are wrapped around it and your foot is next to your ear or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to look at the ones that rely on uh, advanced level, let's say, of balance or flexibility or strength and deem them dangerous and non-functional, right? So right. even if they do in reality have a lot of transferable qualities, the, you know, marketing is like big paintbrush. It's not little detailed brush. Right. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a buzzword. It's a buzzword. And it, it, it's, it's a buzzword that's actually come to mean, in my opinion, very, very little. Sarah, now here, here's where we could just be really transparent. Like we've, we've definitely used the language in selling our barbell course, like learn to lift barbells safely. Yes. And but. I, think, I think, yeah, our thought behind this was, wasn't to like suggest that it's dangerous, but really to just meet people where they are, because a lot of people think that they're, they're not safe, right? Exactly. I mean, the, the thing is they're safer than flinging a car, a car bell. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's very early in the morning. Okay. You know, we, we've, emphasized a lot how a barbell is in a lot of ways much easier to deal with or work with than something like a kettlebell or even like trying to use two dumbbells. But that is not what is in the public understanding of it. And even mm -hmm. in the clinic, I mean, I have people who say, you know, oh, well, barbells are too much for me. They're, they're too scary. They're too dangerous. Like that's just the public perception, especially for women, for women in particular, uh, that they're going to hurt themselves or that you're going to hurt your back doing deadlifts, or that, you know, the slight ache and pain that you have is going to get worse from lifting heavy, all of that kind of stuff. So we did use the word safely in our uh, marketing, but really because we're emphasizing how safe barbells actually are ultimately. And, you know, I don't think it's wrong when you're, when you're starting a new modality. And for a lot of the people in the course, this is a brand new way of lifting, or maybe they've started a little bit of barbell work, but they haven't done a ton. It's, I think it's entirely appropriate to seek out someone to teach it to you and how to teach it to you correctly. So that as the things like, once the weight starts getting harder, you've got really good form to back it up, right? Things like that. So as much as I now just sound like I'm defending our course, we did have very specific reasons to use that word safely. Well, the, I think the reason really was to meet people where they were in their beliefs and attitudes toward barbells, which is that we think you think that this is scary. We, we engaged in a year-long campaign to reverse <laughs> that idea, right? Many, because many people in yoga and Pilates are, are oftentimes women, older women, a lot of times too, they think, they think that it's inherently dangerous. And, and so we're, in a sense, we're actually taking them on this six-month journey live follow-along classes, walking them toward the skill of doing it. Yes, I would probably say efficiently rather than safely, truly, but that's not the word people are hung up on. They're, they're hung up on safety. Um, but 
at the same time, and this is this was our year, we waged a year-long campaign really making this argument. There is no evidence suggesting that lifting barbells is any more dangerous than lifting any other type of free weight. Okay. Right. And and you know, compared to other forms of exercise, weight li lifting weights is extremely safe. And we'll get into this a little bit more as we go. So, you know, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm really thinking like of certification entities. We're not a certification entity either, right? We're, we're not, we're not like, don't do CrossFit. That's so dangerous. Do our certification instead, right? And we're also not like, don't do CrossFit. That's so dangerous. We're like, CrossFit's great. Come with barbells. Just lift barbells, all right? Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, but there's like lots of yoga schools that are like, we teach safe yoga, we teach functional yoga, and or, and or just like rampant fear mongering around uh, bad posture, bad exercise technique that you get from a lot of other movement systems. And, and there's really no evidence showing people with, with bad posture or with less efficient exercise technique are more at risk of injury. There's just not. And it, it's very, it kind of goes back to some of the alignment dogma episodes where we talk about the conventional that sometimes conventional wisdom runs contrary to scientific evidence and this can create a lot of cognitive dissonance um, but the fact of the matter is individuals express a wide range of exercise techniques you can perform an exercise inefficiently and still receive benefits from doing so and so this whole idea that like this certificate this certification program that teaches you a certain way of moving safer than another is probably bullpucky probably probably just a marketing device right um, all right Back to unregulated industries and their use of certs. In some cases, there is an extra fee associated with certifying, right? Whether it's a one-time or recurring fee. And in many cases, um, this could provide additional revenue in the form of certification dues for the company. So the company is going to make more money off of this. So Sarah, have you ever been a part of certifications that charge recurring fees to maintain a cert. Um, did Yoga Tune-Up do this? I know yes. we were both Yoga Tune-Up teachers. CrossFit, I think, does. I think FRC might. Um, I don't what, know. What does this provide the teacher that they're paying every year to maintain their cert? Um, and and well, then what do you think? Does it help the consumer at all? Well, if you are teaching, like say, so I'm going to just use Yoga Tune-Up as an example because that's what I certified in and then I uh, paid their annual dues. So as a certified teacher, which you can only be, be if you continue, because I'm no longer a certified teacher because I, I no longer am paying my annual dues, even though I still retain all the knowledge and the learning that I got from that training. But as a certified teacher, you can then go and offer a, a you know yoga tune-up class at a yoga studio or at a gym or at a CrossFit box or wherever, right? So it it allowed you to teach a class called Yoga Tune-Up. Now, whether or not that's a benefit for you as the teacher, or if it's ultimately more of a benefit for the creator of the style of movement, you know, who's just, you are essentially going out into the world and expanding the recognition of the name and getting more people to hear about it, right? So you're you're doing that part for them. You may really love and believe in what you're teaching. And so you're not, you know what, I don't, that doesn't matter to me. And I, this is really what I want to teach. And it, these are the, this is the gateway to be able to teach it is I have to pay this annual fee. So I'm just going to do it. It also allows you to call yourself by the name of whatever the certification is. So you'd get to call yourself a yoga tune-up certified teacher. Uh, and again, that's something where 
potentially a consumer is going to come along and be like, oh yeah, I took a yoga tune-up class one time. I really liked it. Oh, here's this other person teaching this style. Let me take this class. And so it, it allows some consumer recognition in that sense. But again, it's also working as sort of a marketing tool, kind of a free marketing tool for not only free, the reverse of free, you've paid them to uh, get the name of the, of the course of the brand of the style out there in the world. And then the other thing that you would get was, I, I believe you got to be listed in the yoga tune-up registry on their website. So if somebody was looking for, like say they were in New York, but they used to live in California and they're like, are there any yoga tune-up classes in New York? They could go on the website, find them. They might find you that way. I personally didn't find that that happened very much. I don't think that is a, a very, um, uh, it's not a marketing tool that gets a lot of eyeballs or use, but that was sort of what was um, included in the annual fee of being a yoga tune-up teacher. Well, yeah. No, I took a barbell, barbell rehab is the name of this certifying entity. No recurring, no recurring fees. And in fact, no additional fee, but we had to pass an open book, multiple choice test, right? That was the, that was the test at the end. And so, um, their whole thing was, you know, we're going to list you on a, a registry of barbell rehab providers or whatever they call it. And that I think, you know, marketing opportunity for the individual teacher is something, but it is a much smaller opportunity for the teacher than it is for the entity certifying for that teacher to be advertising for them, basically advertise yes. for them. The, the other thing I'm going to say too, is like something like yoga tune-up or CrossFit, which are really amalgamations of many different entity, uh, many different rather modalities of movement, right? Like CrossFit kind of brings in strength training. They bring in gymnastics. They bring in uh, cardiorespiratory endurance activities, right? Like lots of different things kind of put together in a way that has become very, very popular. Um, the coaches coming or the teachers coming to those modalities who are, I think, very successful have probably had lots of other continuing education before that to really hone their technique, to, to build their knowledge base, to build their ability to work with people in a movement classroom setting to where like now if you're calling yourself, I'm a CrossFit coach and you're selling your teaching as CrossFit, is it really the CrossFit that people are coming for? Or is it actually your skill as a teacher? So in a way, it's, it's almost like the opposite. Putting your name on a registry, sure, so that people know that you teach FRC, for example. And they're maybe going to do like a random internet search and be like, who in Houston teaches FRC? Oh, this random person who I don't know at all teaches FRC, so I'm going to go to them. Okay, that could happen every blue moon, right? But what's probably happening is that your class as an FRC teacher or a kin stretch teacher is so freaking popular because you're actually a really good teacher and you bring a lot to the table, a fraction of which FRC gave you. Right. But you're, I agree. Advertising, you're advertising for FRC. Do you understand like 
that's what's happening. <laughs> and I, I, I sound like I'm mad about it. I'm not mad about it. I think it's fine too. I think it's fine, especially I think for newer teachers who are like, I don't really have a voice yet. I don't really have a point of view yet. And this, and this, this weekend certification gave me a lot to say. And if people like this content and they're going to come to my class for that reason, like, great. Cause I, I, nobody knows me yet. Right. Like totally 100%. Right. Exactly. Like there, as you were talking, I was thinking it sort of acts in the reverse, uh, like the name recognition of the course will bring people to the course who then learn about you. And maybe you are a fantastic teacher, but you just don't have a lot of name recognition or whatever that like it can function in, in reverse in that way that, that more people will learn about you and come to love you as a teacher. But I think then that we get into the world of, Oh, well now I have, you know, quote unquote followers or people who really like what I do and they will take my class no matter what it is. Right. Or they'll follow me from this studio to that studio. And it's got less to do with the, the style of the class and more to do with the teacher themselves. I think, ultimately in this in the movement industry because there are so many options people it is much more of a kind of word of mouth people find out about you and they they like you and i think the average consumer if you asked them what frc was they would not be able to tell you but you could they would say like oh yeah i go to this class at my gym and it's like a mix of like some yoga and then some you know this stuff she calls functional and i just the teacher's amazing and i really like her like i think most consumers are less hung up on like the letters or the degrees or the certifications that the teacher has and more interested in the teacher themselves 100% because do you think people are going to keep going back to a class no matter what it's called where the teacher is really not doing a great job, like that's not skilled, that it doesn't have interpersonal skills, that doesn't really understand movement, that, you know, doesn't create a positive atmosphere. No, it doesn't matter what brand name you attach to your class. Probably not going to be a lot of people there because this is a uh, public sector, unregulated industry where what matters really at the end of the day in a capitalistic economy is the bottom line and how many people are showing up, right? And, and that has to do with competition right? Exactly. Okay. But still, Sarah, have you noticed that in the movement world, you know, basically our courses through movement logic, right? When you create some type of continuing education offering for teachers, they want to know if it's a cert. I want to get to the bottom of why the, they seem interested in a cert specifically. It's con ed, it's continuing ed, right? But they want a cert. What are they, what do you think they're, what are, what are teachers looking for? Well, I mean, the, the they are two separate things the way that you talk about them, but I think a lot of people don't separate them out in their mind, right? Uh, I believe Pilates also has requirements for continuing education. Um, certain yoga studios, for example, will require their teachers to seek out some kind of continuing education to continue to be teachers for their studio. Uh, like I said, in the PT world, there are con ed requirements, but they are not certifications because that's not what they are interested in. They don't care what it is. They just care that you did it. I think the reason people get excited about certification specifically is they see other people and whether it's movement teachers or clinicians, but you know, for example, if you are a Pilates teacher and you are a certified Pilates teacher, you get to put like PMA after your name, or so there's a, there's a bunch of different letters. And I think people get very excited about the possibility of putting some letters after their name, mm -hmm. right? And being able to call themselves a certified kin stretch teacher or a certified yoga tune-up teacher or a certified yeah. something. I think the word certified 
conveys mm-hmm. in most people's minds an idea that there is a, a level of qualification and skill that they had to demonstrate in order to be able to call themselves this. But what I find is that is not necessarily true for a lot of movement certifications. No, Um, because we have to have some kind of feedback loop where there's teaching happening based on criteria. They're receiving some specific feedback on that teaching and then they're revising their teaching based on that criteria they're trying to meet. And then they receive additional feedback. This is how school works, right? This right. is how the writing process works, right? Like, remember, you write a rough draft. Then you write a second draft. Then you write a third draft. Then you write a final draft or whatever it is, right? And you're, you're receiving continuous feedback and refining the process. This just simply cannot happen in a day or a weekend or even that much in something as long as a week, which would be an incredibly long certification process. I think what, but I think that the word certification carries with it a type of credibility. It it validates in a way. And I think the reason for that is because it gets conflated with what that means in regulated industries, honestly. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Regulated industries, it really means something. It means you slogged your way through a lot of school and you spent a lot of time and a lot of money and you passed some very hard exams and you really, you really did a lot. The smaller movement trainings that I have been a part of where there is a certification process, you would have to like punch somebody in the face to not receive your certification. And there've definitely been times, and I'll just say it, you know, where I've been, I've sort of looked around and I've been like, I'm not sure that everybody in this room should now be able to call themselves a certified blah, blah, blah teacher. Not that they don't understand the material, but like within this time frame, it has not been processed well enough for them to, I think, then go out and teach it. Yeah. And like you're drinking from the fire hose. Basically, the, yeah. the way certification processes in the movement world work is that there's a creator. Somebody has this idea, they put it together they create a manual, then they usually teach it themselves for a while. And then they're like, I want to expand. Because remember, we're, we're dealing with competition, market forces that the name of the game is usually to expand, right? Like Starbucks, let's have more <laughs> of these now, right? Mm-hmm. And so then what this creator does is they hire teachers to teach the material for them. And these seminars, these trainings, these certifications, whatever, are taught typically over the course of a weekend because now we have to pay to send this teacher to various parts of the country or globe so that they can take this package material and deliver it in a short time span because the name of the game here is like, let's reduce costs and maximize profits, right? And that's that's how it has to work. It's a business, right? So these teachers are traveling here and there, they're leading seminars or trainings, and the teaching time is contained usually to a weekend because of the constraints of traveling. These people have families and other jobs too, right? You know, meanwhile, let's compare this to a non-certifying opportunity, right? An opportunity where you still get to learn, still continuing ed for you. This would be like if you had a local teacher, you went to their class every week, or if you signed up for a long form program like bone density course, where there's not this time constraint and you're not drinking from the fire hose. Have you ever, have you ever taken a weekend cert where you just feel like you're just, you're, you're being basically pelted with information the whole time, 
right? Yes. Like it, you know that you could only retain 20% of it, but it just keeps coming at full force, right? And so it's like you get all of this information that you would actually probably need a year to really fully digest in two days. Whereas these longer form continuing education opportunities, which could simply just be a weekly class with a skilled teacher, you get to process what you've learned every week. You get it in bite-sized chunks. You go home, you apply it in your teaching. You come back, you get a little bit more. And so this long-term process of integrating the information slowly doesn't necessarily feel as exciting a lot of the times, right? It doesn't always feel as brand new, but uh, it's probably, in my opinion, a more effective way to learn, right? To, a, to get skill. Definitely. Uh, I mean, the, the medical model is, uh, well, as I'm about to say, and then I'm like, what is the medical model? No, see one, do one, teach one. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you you watch somebody else do it, you do it, and then you teach it to somebody else. And right. and those are all really great ways to absorb information. And, and people will get more out of you know one maybe than the other, depending on their personal learning style. And this idea of like mentor to apprentice, like if you have a yoga teacher that you love or a Pilates instructor that you love and you're taking their class every week and then you go and teach and you're like, oh, they taught this real cool thing. I'm going to try it. Okay. Now I'm going to teach it. Right. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, an understood method of, of really absorbing material, but it is a horrible way to market anything. And it's certainly not a money-making opportunity for the person whose class you are taking, apart from you know, like the price of entry to the class, right? right. They're because not creating a, a brand. There's no opportunity for endless growth and profit, right? Right, right. It's right. much more, you know, this is the way, it's a very traditional way of learning. I mean, yoga initially, my understanding is that it was taught one-on-one. It was not taught one teacher, a hundred person in a workshop, right. in a workshop, you know? And, and it's more in line with like the the apprenticeship model, which has mm-hmm. been held up by pedagogical experts as one of the most effective teaching models. And that's a real slow burn, you know. You it's not elect- sexy. A, a, yeah, an electrician doesn't go get a master's degree in electrician work, right? They they have a master electrician that they follow around day after day after day, and watch and do the work for, right? All right. Yeah. So what is it? What is it? We still haven't really gotten to this mm. answer, right? What is it about certs that feels more official to people? So we say we mentioned like maybe there's this illusion of a higher level of professional competence. There's this idea that we've been validated somehow by this word certification, even though the word certification really doesn't doesn't mean what we think it means. Probably in an unregulated industry, um, I think I think movement professional certifications provide a way of of looking at movement. Okay. A lot of times they rely very strongly on a shared language, right? In fact, I think that's really what's being sold is a language, not a new way of moving. Okay. Mm-hmm. A new language for talking about movement, which gives us, because we think in words a lot of the times, a way of thinking about movement, which is very important actually. And that's why these movement certs or any kind of opportunity that gives you language and a new way of looking at movement can be profoundly, profoundly beneficial to you and and worthwhile. So, but you know, at the end of the day, movement is movement, right? Joint circles are joint circles, right? Yoga asana is yoga asana and lifting weights and gymnastics. That's what that is, right? That's calisthenics. That's what that is. So we give it a brand name though. Probably what we've done is we've created a shared language for talking about what's happening and explaining why it's beneficial. 
right? And a new way of thinking about the human body and human movement that maybe you didn't have before. And a lot of the time, the way that that is couched is in language that is what you knew before is wrong, or you didn't have the whole picture, or this is what everyone's saying, but the reality is this thing over here is more correct, more accurate, more real, more true. And you want to join our group because we're the ones like on the frontier of new thinking about movement and new ways to describe joint circles, calling them cars, right? And, or whatever it's, it is, uh, it is often so much just about like, that one's bad. Come over here. This one's good. And, and that's a very, it, it sounds stupid, but that is a very appealing concept for people, right? I think a it's lot insider, of people, especially insider, outsider, insider, outsider, exactly. you're, in, you're an insider on this new that, style. And, and I would say in particular for people who have been, you know, sort of taught or came up in the yoga world versus the Pilates world, the Pilates world is a lot more, um, I want to say like for, organized for want of a better word, you know, the, the Pilates is Pilates and there are different schools where you can learn from, and then you're teaching slightly different ways. But, you know, I've, I've been trained in rehab Pilates, but it's essentially just taking what you would take in a class and then showing you how to do it with somebody who might have a shoulder injury or something like that. Right. So it's there, there's less of a, Oh, well, the Pilates you knew was wrong. And this is the right Pilates over here. Versus in the yoga world, because there's already so many styles of yoga that are so different from each other, I think that then leads to, oh, well, you know, for like for a lot of us, I was a gung-ho, crazy, vinyasa flow yoga teacher, and let's just all fling our bodies around. And then suddenly I realized like, oh, wait a minute, I know nothing about what to tell somebody when they told me that pose didn't feel good on their back, mm -hmm. you know? So some of it is, I think, in the yoga world in particular, a sense of, and I don't know if, 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 consumers care about this as much as teachers do care about this in front of other teachers, you know, what their reputation is or what they've done, but it's like a code language, right? Oh, this person teaches yoga tune up as well as regular yoga. So then if I'm going to their class, I'm going to expect this is not a, you know, level two, three vinyasa flow style class, things like that, you know, you know if you um, know what yoga tune up is. Right, exactly. I mean, that's that's part of it as well. But but I think that's why I said, like, I, I think it's more signaling to other teachers who, like, what, what team are you on? Are you on team fun mm -hmm. vinyasa flow class? Are you on team more Iyengar-based, really alignment-focused class? Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a very, it's sort of a big, you know, flag. That's yeah, your... Shared, shared, like, shared languages and values result in a type of culture, right? I've, yeah. I've heard CrossFit explained as a culture, for example. Yeah. CrossFit culture. Mm -hmm. Now, none of none of what CrossFit teaches is inherent to CrossFit, right? They draw from Olympic weightlifting, traditional strength training, track and field, gymnastics, athletic training practices that have been around for decades longer than CrossFit. But CrossFit took all this stuff and created a culture, very distinct culture. And this culture, this language, none of this ensures competence. competence <laughs> yeah. None of it ensures safety. That's on the teacher, right? And yeah. movement is just movement. It's how human bodies can move, how individuals express movement under certain circumstances, whether it be under load as fast as possible at end range, whatever it is. And your ability to effectively teach movement depends on so much more than your ability to transmit the values of a movement culture. Speak its language, 
or even your understanding of movement on a more universal level, because there's an awful lot of people skills involved to teaching skillfully too. Absolutely. Um, the This idea of like, I mean, there's a yoga culture as well, right? There's all of these movements. There's a Pilates culture. All of these movements have a attraction to certain participants because of what the physical activity is, but also because of like, you know, with CrossFit, it's a, there's a huge communal sense to it. You work out with people, you yell out in class, which I had never done this before. Like what, what your numbers were that workout, like you are seen and you are included and you are made, you are like, whether you want it or not, you are part of this group and part of this community. Yeah. You know, in the yoga world, people sort of signal their yoga-ness by wearing certain clothes or restricting their diet in certain ways or their choices around, you know, there's a lot of sort of environmental uh, involvement for a lot of people as well. In the Pilates world, it's it's also like, well, are you classical or are you non-classical? And there is a, um, there's a huge, I mean, I've, we've talked about this before, but it's, in Pilates in particular, there's a huge um, prevalence, or I would say uh, emphasis on a certain body type. And, you know, because it did develop out of the world of dance. So there is that leftover for people. So there are, you know, the other thing with the certification is that it gives you a belonging, right? You get to be a member and you get to be a group of, of, of a people. Uh, and I think that's very appealing for people as well. Absolutely. Have you noticed that some of the ways of languaging movement that come out of certs are maybe more reliant on pretty sounding language than on like what's actually happening in the body though, that like ways of describing what's happening, talking about it can actually end up being kind of confusing or complicated, like overly complex. I'm thinking like the classic examples, like controlled articular rotations. Right. That is a lot of words. It's yes. really technical sounding. And what it's describing is joint circles. Yes. Joint circles done a certain way. There's a lot of ways to circle a joint, right? Yes. But it's it's the official language, right? It's the official mm -hmm. language. And I and I think that when this official language, right, is is transmitted to teachers, that it becomes in their mind sort of elevated, right? Sure. That like now um, I'm talking about concepts that are seemingly universal, right? And I'm using this established way of talking about these concepts. And, and a lot of the times these established ways of talking about these concepts are nowhere in scientific literature. Like scientists aren't using these terms. Like this is not what's being researched or looked at, or if it is, it's not like we're not calling it controlled articular rotations. Right. And so then this language that these certifications are transmitting, which really sets the certification apart as a culture, right? Oftentimes creates, I think, a kind of way of thinking about movement that is lacking in scientific validity or slash is not evidence-based a lot of the time. Um, another one is like myofascial release, right? Why don't we just say massage? Right. Right. Uh, a lot of times, I think certs create this issue um, where, where there doesn't need to be one, which is that they, they, in creating a communication style and developing their own special insider lexicon, they create a lot of confusion. Uh, other other examples of this are butt wink. I think that's a CrossFit thing. I'm not sure though. Yeah, um, I think it is. Yeah, and and, and in yo in yoga schools, like elbow hyperextension becomes this 
this it's not it's not like a special way of saying hyper elbow hyperextension like elbow hyperextension is elbow hyperextension probably in the scientific literature as well right like you put a spotlight on something because your movement system has chosen to spotlight this thing when it's it's a non issue it's liter it literally doesn't matter <laughs> right? right like and now, it does. now it does because this movement system has decided it matters right and and like butt wink which is for people if you don't know what butt wink is it's the yeah. movement of your pelvis when you're doing um a deeper squat perhaps, or it could even happen during like a deadlift, but where your pelvis goes into some posterior tilt has been found to be totally normal and fine and nobody needs to worry about it. But again, it goes back to this idea of safety, right? So if you want to make sure that your students don't have butt wink, dun, 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 you need to come and certify in this style of movement, right? Yeah. And to your point, like it's not, I mean, in this instance, the research actually shows completely the opposite, but for a lot of things, um, there's just not, there's not any specific research around that problematized way of moving or type of moving that holds up any, that there's just, it just doesn't hold any water. But again, this goes back to this idea of a certification is at its essence, a branding tool for the company or person who has created that that style. And so anything, I mean, being able to problematize things is a fantastic way to sell anything, right? Right. So because in order to offer a solution, you have to have a problem. Exactly. Right? So a lot of times, like marketing focuses mostly on talking about the problem, not the solution. Because first they have to talk about the problem because they have to, ba basically, that's how they catch the fish. That's how they get their audiences. Basically, they start talking about problems that people think they have or have, right? And yeah. they do it in a compelling way. And then they get the ears, right? Then they get the eyes and the ears. And then then they sell the solution, right? There's a really funny old joke from Chris Rock where <laughs> he's talking about all the ads that you see for drug um, drugs on TV, different medications, and how they, you know, list all the things that that could go wrong or whatever. But his joke about this one medication is that their selling point is, do you go to bed at night and wake up in the morning? And you're going to be like, Oh my God, I do. I need this thing. <laughs> right? It's basically what they're doing. Yeah, completely. Completely. Uh, do PTs need certifications to get con ed credits? No, they don't. Uh, but you do need to get con ed credits. Most continuing education in physical therapy is not certification. Got it. But there are some certification courses. Like I also did the barbell rehab course. I did the online version and it um, the, I specifically picked it because it did have accreditation for physical therapy, but a lot of, it's very hard to get that. And most certifications don't have that. Uh, the, the con ed courses for PT are most typically offered under like sort of one umbrella aggregate source website that has a bunch of different courses from a bunch of different people, but you're not certifying in any, like I just took one that was about like continuing concepts for working with people with multiple sclerosis, because I have a couple of patients right now who have MS. And so it's only useful for me to know whatever is the most, you know, the most recent research about it. So I think that's the difference between physical therapy and the unregulated movement world, which is the emphasis is on concepts and learning and research. It's not on a person or a style or a name brand, but you can study and get more, you know, of the alphabet soup letters after your name. If you want to, there's all kinds of postgraduate level 
education that you could get, but that that's a totally different thing than just continuing education credit. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, right. All right. Well, I'm going to bring up Yoga Alliance now. Uh, every time I post critically on Instagram about what I see as kind of, uh, I'll just call it the dark side of certifications, even though like it's not even that dark of a side. I just, I guess what I'm trying to do with this uh, episode and, and, you know, you tell me what you think we're trying to do here is just to get <laughs> maybe maybe to just think more critically about like the role that certifications actually play in the moving world. So when I say dark side of certs, I'm not like, oh, certs are bad. I'm just saying like, why certs? Why are we certifying? What are we certifying? What are we ensuring? You know, right. what's the accountability there? So I want to talk about yoga lines here because a lot of times when I post about certs on Instagram, someone comments about yoga lines. Like a couple of weeks ago, a studio owner commented, that they no longer perpetuate the continuance of yoga alliance as a studio owner or trainer. And I, and this was in the comment section. I asked for a follow-up about what they mean by that. And I was like, feel free to DM me. I didn't get a follow-up. And I'm confused because yoga alliance is, doesn't certify. You're not a certified yoga teacher. You're a registered yoga teacher, right? Right. And so on one hand, I do kind of understand though, because yoga alliance does have studio owners or student or teacher training providers over a barrel in the sense that they do require that you meet certain standards for your training to be called a 200 hour or 300 hour teacher training as it's outlined by Yoga Alliance, right? And if you don't meet those requirements, they won't recognize your training. And so the people who come out of your training who want to then be RYTs through Yoga Alliance won't be able to because you won't be a recognized teacher training through RYT. So, you know, that that's, that's Yoga Alliance saying we need you to meet these minimal requirements for time spent talking about these topics. And I've looked and it seems really, if anything, I would be upset that it wasn't more, right? Yes. Like I wouldn't say that it should be less it should maybe be more. I mean, so I'm, I, I want to know what this teacher means by the perpetuation of the continuance of yoga lines because yoga lines is literally a registry. They have a scope of practice. Again, I think it's pretty reasonable. <laughs> and they're requiring that you meet minimum standards for teacher trainings. I mean, maybe we should do an episode just about yoga lines, but anyway, it's not, yoga lines is not a governing body, it's not a right. government agency that it doesn't regulate anything. If you deviate from their 200-hour TT, you might have trouble getting it approved. People might not want to sign up for it. If you if you are a teacher that breaks their scope of practice, you might be taken off the registry, but you probably should be taken off the registry. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. I mean, I wanted a full disclosure. I was involved in creating the scope of practice. However many years ago that was, I was asked to like, and, and it was a very broad group of people with very differing you know, backgrounds and interests. And, but the entire thing about creating the scope of practice was really about helping. The idea was that it was going to help people understand that they were not in a field where they get to, you know, diagnose or things like that, you know, scope of everybody, like all, all regulated bodies have a scope of practice as well. Like there's, I have a PT scope of practice. There's certain things that I cannot do. Uh, and I don't, and sometimes people ask me to do them and I say, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, um, like I'm not really supposed to give super involved nutritional advice and it gets a little bit, you know, gray area with that. But the thing is well with yoga alliance. So, so 
yeah, again, it's a registry, like you become a RYT. And that is an, again, that's a set of letters that you get to put after your name that maybe a consumer would recognize. But more importantly, my, you know, pre, or I don't know if it's, if it's this way anymore, but when I got my initial teacher training and I was an RYT, that meant that I could then go to other places and say, Hey, I'm a yoga teacher. I am a registered yoga teacher via yoga Alliance, which confers a, <laughs> to your point, a very low level of requirements. And the, the fact that I passed my yoga teacher training does not confer any particularly level of skill because I don't think anybody didn't pass from what I can recall. There might've been one or two people, but I was in a hundred person class, right? Pretty much all of them got to call themselves RIT. So this idea that yoga Alliance is somehow like this big evil, whatever, uh, it's just not, it's not accurate because you can, you can do whatever you want because it's an unregulated industry. It might confer some recognition if you were to try to teach somewhere other than the place that you were certified. But at this point, I mean, my friend was telling me uh, who works at Equinox, they're no longer even caring if you're a certified yoga teacher or not, not yeah. a reg- registered yoga teacher or not. They, they literally don't care. Anymore. Frankly, they shouldn't care. That's the thing. Yeah. And that's what people, people are, I think, upset studio owners or like training providers are upset because they think that their future customers care because their future customers care if their future employers care. But the, my my thought is that actually they shouldn't care. You shouldn't care if someone is a registered yoga teacher, you should care after seeing them teach. Right. And let's actually have you start teaching here and see how it goes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? mean, Like I, I really think that, at least if you do have a 200 hour, 300 hour teacher training, like there is, but there is some expectation you could reasonably have for this person's understanding of just like a, a baseline ability to teach, I guess. Yeah. And that's very different than a weekend or a week, you know, 200 hours right. is a long time. It's, it's a relatively long time. It's longer yes. than a weekend. It is longer right. than a weekend. And the fact that Yoga Alliance tried to create some accountability through their scope of practice, where they even put the idea that some teachers maybe didn't have in their head yet that there is a scope of practice, I think is a good thing, right? I agree. That like, no, you can't actually tell people that yoga is going to re- cure their cancer. Like that, that's a... Right. Uh, a fireable right. offense from the standpoint of we'll take you off the registry. The question of like, you know, how value, how valuable is it to be on the registry? I think it used to be a lot more meaningful than it is now because yeah. people have started to realize that like, it is just a registry. That's all it is. Right. But at the time when we created that scope of practice, people went mental. They lost their goddamn minds and yeah, they were very upset about it. And I, <laughs> I just remember there was a, there was a group of very, very vocal people about it on Facebook and they joined me to a group. I did not join. They joined, they found me, they joined me to a group that was called basically like, we don't like this. And then they said, explain yourself. And I just said, I don't have to. And I left the group because I don't have to. <laughs> it's like, the you know, it's not a requirement for me to do that. The irony is that a lot of times these same people are complaining about how poor the quality of yoga teaching is, right? Right. So then they're taking something like Yoga Alliance and going like, "You're you're trying to make, you're trying to create some accountability. We don't like that. Yoga but, is not about accountability." But, but meanwhile, 
yoga teacher trainings are awful and terrible and teachers don't know what they're doing. It's like, well, what do you want? Do you right. want accountability nobody, nobody. not accountability? Like there's only so far Yoga Alliance can really reach in and make any difference in this industry right. as a registry, but they've tried to a little bit and I don't think they're very effective, but I also don't think that they're like causing really nearly the amount of harm that some people think. Like I just no. don't know. All right. No. Let's, so let's talk about these tests that you sometimes have to take after a certification. Um, I've heard from a couple people about some various ways that places certify you or, or check to see that you should receive certification. Um, the CSCS, which is the personal trainer certification I took was all a test. There was no moment in which I had to actually personally train anyone and receive feedback on that. So that's almost like the opposite of what most certifications are, which is that you take a weekend training or you take a week long training. And then you, there's some teaching opportunity that happens in there, or at least you're in the same room with people and someone's showing you how to teach the movement or demonstrating that to you. Right. Yeah. DSCS is literally you in a textbook. And then you go to a testing center and you take a multiple choice test. That's, that's yeah. what it is. Um, with yoga tune up, uh, depending on if it was the weekend ball training or if it was the yoga tune up level one, there was some type of teaching example that you had to submit. And then with the level one, there was a, I think like a multiple choice short answer test, right? Yoga works was similar. Yoga works. There was a 200 hour training, 300 hour training. There was some type of submission of some type of work that you've personally done, like whether it's teaching something or with the 300 hours, some kind of project, final project that you did. And then there was usually 200 hour, there was two tests. There was a long answer and a short answer test. Um, so yeah, so that, so then barbell rehab was just like a multiple choice open book. The kettlebell cert that I took was, was the same thing. Multiple choice, uh, open book. Um, do you, do you have any other examples of these tests? No, I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty standard. Yeah. And so, um, I'm just going to speak from the, from the standpoint of like a, a student, right? A lot, a lot of times, like, I think these tests, if they're like short answer, multiple choice, open book, I guess are just really like checking to see that you weren't totally checked out like on some other planet the entire time you were there. But even then, if you were, you just open up the book and find the answers, like read and find the answers and mark down. I'm not really sure what they're doing other than they might be necessary to be able to give continuing education credits. Like I do think that there's something about like the NSCA that goes like, okay, if you're going to be a con ed provider, you have, there has to be some sort of test that they pass at the end. Right. I know that that's yeah. the case with ACE because my training resistance span 101 that I did with yoga journal, we made it uh, ACE continuing ed course and I had to create a test, right. As a trainer, putting trainees through some type of test, I always thought of as just really like a celebration of what they could do. And I rarely, I, I failed a couple people at yoga works because they, they just legit failed the, the closed book test. You know, they got like 50% on it and, and that's easy. Then it's like, you don't, you don't know this material. You need to go back and study and retake the test or something. I've never watched someone teach, whether it be on video submission or in person and gone, you know what? I'm afraid I can't pass you. I'm afraid I can't give you like this certification or allow you to use this name on your resume or whatever, because that, that wasn't, that wasn't up to snuff. You have. Okay. So, I have. so how, how about how many people have you certified 
And how many people have you failed? The fail rate is extremely low. It's yeah. probably like 2%. And, and, and I only- Outlier here, right? Yes, it was, it was, uh, it was yoga tune up and it was, you know, it's a, the level one, which is a week long training, which is, you know, it's, it's a pretty intense. It's definitely like a fire hose experience and you don't, you know, again, it, it's not regulated in any way. It was sort of left up to the teachers who are teaching it, but I did have conversations with Jill about it. And it's, it wasn't just like, oh, if you feel like it, you know, fail them, but the the people that I did not pass were people who, you know, the idea with yoga tune up is that it's a very, it's a completely different teaching style, most likely than what you are currently teaching. And by the end of the week, you would want to see that the person is at least grasping some elements of that style, whether it's the language they're using, whether it's the, the way that they're teaching, you know, all, all these different aspects. And the only people I ever failed were the ones where I was like, you know what, this person from the beginning of the week to the end, I did not see any comprehension or, or any sense that they took in what we're saying and then use that to teach in a slightly different way. Like their teaching demonstration was essentially like just the way they already taught. So that's the, that was the kind of thing where I was like, well, if you were to go out in the world and call this what you're teaching a yoga tune-up class, it would be very inaccurate because it's not containing the elements that we are that we are saying is part of being a yoga tune-up teacher but yeah again the fail rate is extremely low yeah i mean i i always felt like you know okay you didn't you didn't absorb what i just yeah. tried tried to help you absorb in a weekend it didn't come through in your teaching exactly i don't feel comfortable saying then in that moment like i don't think even though you paid four figures or whatever you paid for this, that I can certify you because I'm usually, I'm pretty sure that like you're going to figure it out with a little bit more time. And also what's the worst thing that could happen? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're just probably not going to have too many people in your class, honestly. Like right. it, it no. comes down to like the skill level of the teacher is not quite there. It's true. They're not going to be able to really teach. It doesn't matter that, they couldn't really teach yoga tune up well. It was, they're probably not going to teach movement very well, right? Like they're not going to probably hold on to a whole lot of students in that class for very yeah. long when there's so many other teachers probably that those students could go to instead. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it kind of, it's coming down more to like just your ability to be frankly competitive as a teacher. And I never had any like really horrible. I had one woman once who was who was like son was like getting into really big trouble or something and she was like mm. out all night like trying to figure out what happened with him and like her teaching was like way off and I had to redo it. I was like let's do it again and I want you to focus on these two things and then it was better and I was like great, you're certified. That's fine. That's yeah. all I need to see, right? Like the instances where I didn't pass someone the first time. It was then followed up. Thank you for making that point. It was then followed up by, let's have you do these few things and yeah. then you'll be certified. Like it just, it often just meant a little bit extra work. Yeah. And like, if there was a, if there was a attendance requirement and someone didn't meet that, that was easy. I was like, no, you right. didn't, you didn't come. You weren't here. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That in that case, like, let's just have you make this up and then we'll give it another shot. Okay. So I think we've, we've talked about how the, the tests that people undergo are oftentimes not really measuring what's important to measure or they can't, right? Because there's not enough time. Certifications don't really 
hold people accountable to the same degree that certifications do in regulated industries. And the barrier to entry is much, much lower. And therefore, what are certifications doing? But are there other potential benefits to certifications? Like, I'm thinking like, do they offer uh, next level continuing at or professional development or even networking opportunities that non-certs don't, right? Like, there's a whole community around animal flow, for example. There's a whole community around CrossFit. There's a whole community around yoga tune-up. And these people are talking to each other. Are they potentially helping to elevate each other professionally in some way? I think possibly, right? Absolutely. You and I wouldn't know each other if it weren't for yoga tune-up. Or, exactly. or we, we may never have met. Maybe we would have. But you are in New York and I was already in Los Angeles, you know, in a, a sort of professional circle. Uh, we were not in intersecting circles where we would have met each other, you know? So it does definitely expand your community and it expands it into a community of people who are uh, like-minded and who are thinking about movement the way that you are, which might be, you know, different than you were previously or being around them, going to their classes, you know, uh, asking questions, participating in a lot of ways is only going to make you a better teacher, but that's not because you took the certification. It's because you're around the people that were attracted to that style of movement. Okay, so we have discussed how it is difficult to fail someone in a movement cert, given mm -hmm. the constraints of learning in such an environment. And we've and, and this is for tests where it would actually be harder to pass, which I would say would be like closed book long answer tests or and or closed book tests like the CSCS is actually has a pretty high, high fail rate. Mm -hmm. um, and that way it's like a computer grading you, right? There's no like subjectivity there really. But when someone submits a teaching sample, right, whether it's video or in person, it's very rare that you would like not pass that. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it's fairly difficult to take information you just learned <laughs> and represent your understanding of that information through like a high level of teaching. Yeah. And so depending on the experience level of that particular teacher, how they learn, like also it's not everyone's learning style. And also it's, it's freaking nerve wracking to get up into uh, in front of a room full of your peers and teachers and like teach in this completely artificial scenario where you're being evaluated. Right? right. Like there's all these reasons make it so that like we're probably going to pass the major vast majority of the people yes. who even give it a try. And yet I would pray to God that that is not true for <laughs> doctors in med school and pilots in aviation school. Like I hope they aren't like up to snuff that they do not pass. I oh, hope they, they do fail. not pass. They do right. fail. They fail. Right. You That's know? the difference. The barrier of entry completely different. And, you know, to your point about different people you know, are better or worse at either taking tests generally or taking certain kinds of tests. You know, for, for PT school, it's it's also similar to the CSCS. It's a, but just worse, I think, it's a uh, five-hour, 250-question multiple-choice exam, which tests how well I take a five-hour, 250-multiple-choice uh, exam, right? 100%. There's nothing about it that tests... What is the, you know, the soft skills that are so important in physical therapy? You know, it doesn't test anything about you're faced with a problem. You've done all the things you know how to do and nothing's happening. What would you do here? Right. It's just very much in this scenario. What is the correct test? What is the correct treatment? And it's a lot of just sort of rote 
memorization of those things. And then, you know, it tends to spit out PTs who uh, either do what I did, which was be like, la, 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 and just learned it and then kept the valuable stuff and ditched the rest and added in other things that I knew. Or it just keep get, gives you PTs who only know how to, you know, if A is the problem, B is the solution. And that's why you get sometimes not great physical therapists. Oh, yeah, of course. And and like, you're, there's not great everything out there. There's not great MDs. There's not great public school teachers. God knows, like everybody has probably encountered these these individuals. But the difference is that, yes, okay, tests rarely measure what's important to measure. They almost always measure what's easy to measure, yeah. right? Um, and that's the constraint of the test. But there's a difference between what happens to you when you operate outside of scope of practice and what happens to me if I operate outside of scope of practice. Literally nothing happens to me. Right, exactly. Unless Yoga Alliance gets word of it and is like, oh, you're not on our registry anymore. Right. Right. Dun, 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 and, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and so, okay, fine. Like, right. who? Literally, no one will care. Literally, nobody cares. Other than like, if I if I'm a guest teacher in a 200 hour teacher training, then exactly. okay, maybe right. Exactly. Or I can no longer be a continuing education provider, which could hurt my bottom line. Um, yes. But like, uh, for you, what happens? Oh, I mean, it depends on the severity of the infraction. I always get the words infraction and infarction confused. And infarction <laughs> is a stroke, so. It's not, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't depend on the severity of the, maybe I've had a stroke and that's why I suddenly can't no, do my job correctly, um, but it does depend on the severity. But like we had, for example, separate from that five hour, 250 question exam, we had a whole separate, and this is just in California, the state that has one of the hardest tests to, to pass. Yay. They have a separate legal exam. That's, I believe 50 questions long in a couple of hours. And you just have to memorize. It's literally like, if you do this thing, how many years would you go to jail? Or if you do this thing, what is the maximum fine that you can be? And so it's it's a, <laughs> my feeling with it. And again, it was a lot of like, just memorize it and spit it out. I don't remember any of it. it I mean, I remember like, don't do these things, but I don't remember exactly what the punishment is because my feeling is like, well, if I did it, I'd find out, right? Like, so I don't need to, <laughs> the memorizing of the punishment is not, what, is not what's going to stop me from doing it. I'm just not going to do it because it's not what you're supposed to do. But, you know, the worst case scenario, you lose your license and there is potentially like a, some sort of legal lawsuit against you. And it happens, you know. Right. Um, and you would be, you know, barred from either, be, you know, again, depending on the severity of it, you might be barred from being a physical therapist in your state or you might be permanently barred from being a physical therapist. So there are there are absolutely very real consequences to a lot of things. And, you know, like, for example, the other day, I have a, a patient who is a older teenager, and his mom comes in with him. And sometimes his sister comes in with him as well. And uh, the mom asked if while I was doing my session with her son, you know, her daughter's ankle was feeling a little funny. And could I just like, you know, put some laser on it or something. And I was like, if this, you know, if, if I was working as a movement teacher, I probably would have. But in this role as a physical therapist, I cannot treat somebody who I have not evaluated. And right. as much as the likelihood of anybody finding out if I did do it was basically zero, I still, I have to abide by this, you know, stepwise procedure because it is, it is against my, the, it's, it's against the ethics of my job to just like throw some laser on an ankle when I have never uh, evaluated it at all. 
And let's say, I mean, this is would be extremely unlikely, but let's say then I did that and they went home and the daughter's like, oh, now it feels worse. If the parent was a, you know, suing kind of a person, they could absolutely go after me. Right. right? So they wouldn't be in trouble for having asked me to do it. I'm in trouble for having done it. So I said no. because, And I was like, I'm really sorry. I just can't. And, right. you know. Are you more likely to be sued? In, in As a movement teacher, are you more likely to be sued if you are not certified in the thing you're teaching? So like a per- personal trainer is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. And it's timely too, because I think a lot of yoga teachers and Pilates teachers are starting to use weights with their students mm-hmm. and they're not certified personal trainers. Right? They haven't done that yet. Okay? Right. And I was, I was training people before I had my official CSCS, right? Yeah. So the question is like, are you more, are you opening yourself up to being sued? And like Sarah and I don't really know the answer to that question because we're not I lawyers. Do we're, not, we're not telling you yes or no. Um, but what do you think? Well, you're saying opening yourself up more to being sued if you are certified versus if you're not certified? If you're not certified. If you're operating as a personal trainer, but you are not a certified personal trainer. I don't think, honestly, it makes any amount of difference because the certification certification does not protect you in any way from (laughs) someone going after you and suing you for injuring them, right? Then it also becomes a question of like, where did it happen? If you're a trainer working at a gym they might decide to go after the gym because you were working at the gym at the time. If you're teaching them out of your house, they there's no like professional whatever. There's only like personal liability or whatever insurance you might have. I mean, my thing is just like, just make sure you have good insurance. <laughs> but Yeah, totally. But that's a different story. But yeah, no, the certif- certified or not does not change anything about whether or not someone could sue you. I don't uh, think for- so either. I don't think so either. Meanwhile, you could easily be sued as a PT operating as a PT who doesn't doesn't have a license to operate as a PT. I mean that oh, 100%, 100%. Can I mean, right. Yes. Yeah. Like yes. I, I mean I don't think you would you wouldn't get very far because I mean you, you would be it just doesn't there there you can't re- you couldn't really do it especially successfully for particularly long just like calling yourself a physical therapist in this lying. country. Basically you'd be lying. You'd well, be, be so, so much regulation around it that like somebody would find out eventually. Essentially. Right. You, you'd be, you'd, basically, you'd be saying, I'm a PT and you're not a PT, which is, right. which is fraud, I think, right? I remember hearing a story about, this is not PT, but a woman who tried to sue her yoga teacher because her kundalini was awakened too rapidly. Are you um, serious? Yes. And Are you I, making my, this up? What? No, I'm not making this up at all. And my understanding is that it was thrown out of court. <laughs> but That is hilarious. No, but, I, I, I've, I've asked this question before, too, is like, if someone were to, were to become injured in a movement class, any any kind, including strength training, right? What type of evidence would need to be presented in court to show that it was the teacher specifically that caused the injury? The only thing I can think, because injury is multifactorial, right? Mm-hmm. There's a number of reasons why someone gets injured, including like how much sleep they got the night before, right? Yeah. So how are you going to prove of all the things that can contribute simultaneously to the event of an injury, how right. would you then isolate out just this teacher's influence? The only thing I can think of is if there's video camera in the room and the teacher gives a very aggressive hands or literally just goes and knocks someone, like bump, like kicks someone. You know, I can't think right. Right. of where this happens. And But I think there's a lot of fear around it from movement teachers. That's why everybody's protecting their ass because we live in a very litigious society in the United States. People get sued all the time for stuff. But here's the thing. This is the thing that I that I always think of is like my daughter plays soccer 
and the coaches coaching her in soccer guarantee you they are not certified soccer coaches, right? <laughs> I'm sure they know a little bit about hydration and I'm sure they know they might know CPR and AED, pediatric CPR and AED, right? I hope so. But I doubt they they probably played in college or high school and they know the game and that's the only and they like kids and their kids are on the team and that's it. That's all they that's all they need. So and everyone thinks like, oh yeah, I'm gonna send my kids to soccer, right? And they don't ask, are these coaches certified? Okay, right. but but oh, you're gonna go, you're gonna go train students to lift weights. Don't you need a personal trainer certification for that? Do you know the difference between the safety of lifting weights and the safety of playing soccer? Do you know what it is? I do actually, but I'm gonna let you tell me. Okay. Soccer, 35 injuries per 1,000 hours of participation. Power lifting, which is heavy strength training, right? It's just one way of heavy strength training. Less than six injuries per 1,000 hours of participation. Running is 12, right? Powerlifting is six. Bodybuilding's even lower than that. Bodybuilding's like twice as safe as powerlifting. So heavy strength training is two times safer than running and six times safer than soccer. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, you got better be a personal trainer before you personally train anyone. And my kids playing soccer, isn't that like not a second thought on that? Right. right. <laughs> totally. It's just like so funny. Anyway. Um, okay. We're talking about what people believe certifications give them. Do they give them additional liability protection? Sarah and I are not lawyers, but we doubt it. Okay. Do they help teachers um, have community and receive further continuing education? Yes, potentially. Do they help teachers network? Potentially. Yes. Um, do certifications help teachers niche down? Like, do you, you know, that, that there's this kind of idea in the marketing world that like in order to really be successful at any type of entrepreneurship, but now we're in the movement teaching world. So it's like really to be successful, you could really have to niche down. Do certs help you do that? They can. Yeah. I mean, that's what yoga tune-up ended up doing for me because I, when I was part of the, the community, it was sort of early-ish days and Jill was creating a anatomy course that was the idea was it could be inserted into any yoga teacher training or you could just take it separately and she needed people to teach it and I started teaching it for her and so then that in a lot of ways started I mean I was already interested in anatomy but that that sort of gave me a push to have to really like know what the heck I was talking about if I was going to start I remember her asking me to do it in March and the first time the first course was going to be in October and I was like I will be I was like I'm not ready now but I will be ready by October because that's usually how I do things is I make it really hard for myself and then I force myself to go through it but yeah. in a way it's like I'm I'm glad that it happened that way because then I began teaching my own anatomy and I became I sort of developed a bit of a reputation in that yoga tune-up world in particular of being a teacher who knows anatomy or people would send private clients to me because they knew that like, oh, this person is a little bit more to handle than I can, but Sarah knows more about anatomy. So maybe she's going to be able to work with them better, things like that. So I definitely yeah, I, I wonder if it was the certification of yoga tune-up that made that possible or just did it just happen to be that yoga tune-up was a certification because a similar thing happened to me with teaching anatomy for yoga works and like I mean it wasn't it wasn't yoga tune-up it wasn't that yoga tune-up said with our certification you will become an anatomy teacher it just happened right. to be the means by which you know may I could have taught that first class and then been like you know what this isn't for me and then changed my mind but as it turned out it really was for me and I'm sure I believe that Jill sort of you know saw that and knew that and so it helped sort of 
propel me on my way, ultimately propel me on my way to PT school. But certainly in the beginning really got me uh, sort of more of a reputation and more work and jobs based on uh, being a anatomy teacher, not just like a yoga teacher who teaches a lot of alignment in their classes, but this person can actually come into your teacher. Tra- I mean, I still teach in yoga training in a yoga training here in LA. I've taught in it for like the past eight, nine years. I go and teach their anatomy. And that's, right. that is a, a repercussion of the studio owner knowing Jill and meeting me through Jill and then wanting to employ me, you know, in well, their training. So to me, this sounds more like your relationship with Jill then. I mean, because it could have been uh, something like it could have been a studio, right? Like a well-known Absolutely. studio that that knew you and figured yeah. out that you were good at teaching anatomy. And then other people associated with that studio might hear about it and then want to work with you, right? Like, I don't know that a certification. The certification in itself did not do anything. There's a, there's a lot of uh, crossover between kin stretch FRC type work and yoga asana. And so some teachers who have taken those certifications through FRC and kin stretch start to bring in those movements and those ways of talking about the movement, languaging the movement into the yoga class. And they become known as the teacher who teaches in this particular way. Same thing happened to me with with um, self-massage balls that I learned through the role model method through through yoga tune-up, right? And and I became the teacher who uses the balls, right? Now, I did end up getting certified in yoga tune-up. So I guess in that way, I was a certified yoga tune-up teacher, but I could have also just brought the balls in and taught the stuff with the balls. And people would have been like, you're the person who brings in the balls and teaches the stuff with the balls, right? right. They didn't call me the yoga tune-up teacher. They called me the ball teacher. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess like the thing I see happening when teachers niche down is that they develop a more um, developed point of view and a little bit clearer reasoning for doing what they're doing. And because of that, because of their ability to more specifically offer solutions, people with more niche problems start to become attracted to those teachers. And like, ultimately, nobody knows what you teach if you're not one teaching and two talking about what you teach. So really, I think the way we niche down is we teach, we get in front of people, we share something specific with a point of view, which definitely certifications can help you find, but so can non-certifications just as easily, right? And then you talk about what you teach, right? The real way you niche down is through marketing, right? Mm -hmm. It's through talking about what you do in a specific way to a specific audience. All right, what about credibility? We talked about how certifications on a resume or after a name or the letters that you put or whatever it is don't necessarily ensure professional competence, but they might lend some perceived credibility from students or from studio owners. Mm-hmm. Are you generally viewed as more credible or trustworthy? when individuals see that you have these certifications, that you've taken these certifications? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, to a, to a point, uh, I think if you were taking a Pilates class and the person was not a certified in Pilates, you would probably be pretty nervous about getting on, let's say if it was a reformer class, getting on this machine that has all these pulleys and thing and like, they have no idea like how many springs to use for whatever move. They have no idea what to do on there. Like you'd be kind of like, Meh. or like if you took a yoga class and then the person 
was like, oh yeah, I just did yoga for the first time yesterday and I really liked it. So here's a class, <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of that base level where you want yeah. the person certified. And even though there is no requirement per se to train as a personal trainer in order to train people as a personal trainer, I do think having some level of qualification is comforting to people because they know, at least, you know, something a little bit about what you're talking about. Beyond that kind of initial categorization, I think the rest of it is kind of like, we're all just dressing for each other. You know, when they say women don't dress for men, they dress for other women. Have you ever heard that expression? Yeah. That's why I, I dress like, like I'm a tomboy because I don't give a shit what other women think, but like, or maybe they think it looks good. I don't know. But the idea that the rest of the the specialty, that kind of niching down stuff, the yoga tune-up and the kin stretch and the FRC. And if you asked anybody walking down the street what any of those were, they would have no idea. But if you said, do you know what yoga is? They'd be like, yeah, right? So there's a certain level that we're doing for the general population who are going to be students and clients. And then there's another level that we're doing that is kind of messaging the people in our professional community, like, hey, I'm the kind of teacher that teaches yoga tune-up because I use balls, yes. or I'm the kind of teacher who mixes in the kin stretch, or I'm the kind of teacher who's completely classical by the book. I teach yoga asana, I teach nothing else, right? We're, we're developing a brand and our own image, but but that, that but degree we're not. of it... That well, no, no, no. But like, we're we're developing an image that we think of as personalized. But it is it, we're in developing a lot of ways, someone else's brand and image. Okay, let me finish. Happening. Let me finish, please. please. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 creating a maybe not a brand is not the right word, but a self identity. We're identifying ourselves as like part of a group because we like as humans to feel like we're in a group of humans. We don't like to feel like we're separate and different. And, weird. So 100%. we are aligning ourselves with a group. And, you know, I, I don't think I didn't consciously think, oh, yeah, if I do yoga tune up, then what I'm going to be doing is like spreading the brand. Like, I thought of it more as, oh, it's going to make my teaching better. And maybe I'll teach some classes called yoga tune up. And I think that's what most people think. They don't think of it like, oh, I'm going to do FRC so that I'm like helping FRC grow as a business. But that is actually what's happening. Yeah. And this and this is like, not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, it's just a I thing. I just want it to be a conscious choice for people. Do you know totally. what I mean? And I, it wasn't a conscious choice for me. Yeah, me neither. I didn't know what with Yoga Tune Up I was really signing up for. I was like, okay, basically what I thought I was doing was agreeing to not teach the stuff I was learning in the Yoga Tune Up training in any other context other than in a Yoga Tune Up class. And I believe we had to sign some type of agreement that we if if we were to teach like certain percentage more postures within a class that were actually taught in this yoga tune-up training that we that class then had to be called yoga tune-up yes which i actually don't think is enforceable at all like i don't i don't think you can no i don't think that would hold up in in core because basically you can't you can't own movement in that way and we're going to talk about that but like i i don't know i had i had this feeling a little bit like Okay, I'm over a barrel because if I teach this stuff, um, I have to call it yoga tune-up. Meanwhile, I brought a lot of myself to the teaching of yoga tune-up that I got from my years of studying that I did before teaching yoga tune-up. So in a, in a sense, it almost felt like I was like, it, it, like they were kind of taking ownership of me. Do you know what I mean? As a teacher. Right. And, I, and it felt kind of uncomfortable and I couldn't put my finger on why it felt uncomfortable. And then I was like, 
oh, actually, what I can't do is I can't call my teaching yoga tune-up if I'm not certified. Mm -hmm. And certification means that I have to do these things, right? So, and then I was a trainer for yoga tune-up and I was telling other people this as well. And like, it started to make more sense to me as a trainer. I was like, listen, it's pretty simple. You know, you're, you're either not calling your class yoga tune-up or not calling your class yoga tune-up. If you call your class yoga tune-up, you have to be a certified yoga tune-up teacher. That's a trademarked system, right? Like you can't just take someone's trademark and, and say that what you do is that if it's not something that you have actually gotten permission to say. And then it was like, okay, fine. I got it now. But at first I didn't really get it. I didn't get Mm. it as a student on the student end. I was like, oh God, what am I signing up for here? Oh, what if I get sued? And I felt really nervous and and jittery about it and like scared almost, you know? And then, cause like as a yoga teacher too, you're just not used to being confronted with these long contracts. And I think this is maybe the case for like other certifications, not just yoga tune-up. It's just that I'm very, very familiar with yoga tune-up and like kind of the steps that you had to go through to be a yoga tune-up teacher. And I'm I'm sure it's very similar with CrossFit. I'm sure it's very similar with FRC. I'm not sure the extent to which it is though. And like, I guess it's just good to know what you're actually agreeing to here, right? Which is pretty standard. Like you can't copy their manual. That's copyrighted material. And you can't call yourself a this or that teacher if it's a trademark system and they've actually trademarked that name. Yep. That's it. Um, Once you understand that, I feel like you have uh, a lot more control over the decisions and confidence over the decisions you make about sharing the things you learned or not. Right. So that's, I think that's really what I'm trying to also get at in this episode, which is that you can't own movement or movement teachers. Certifications have some good sides to them, but they can also be really confusing in people's minds. The pluses that are currently standing out for me is the community component, the networking component, the potential continuing ed component, like Jill would do coaching calls. And I'm sure there's this like built-in free continuing education component to a lot of these certifications where, especially if you're like re-upping your certification every year, the question fairly enough should be like, what do I get for doing that? Like what's in it for me? And a lot of times there's this ongoing continuing education, which is, which is great, you know? And I've, like you said, I met a lot of really amazing people through Yoga Tune-Up you and I started a whole business together from a Trina, <laughs> right? Obviously, she's former yoga tune-up. So I think that there's a lot of good in that. Do do certifications ensure professional competence? No, mostly because the tests only test what's easy to measure rather than what's important to measure. And there's not enough time logistically for continuous um, trial and error type feedback that would need to happen in a longer program to really develop a teacher, right? Right. To really develop an approach. Um, Do certifications help you avoid being sued? Probably not, not in the movement world. Do certifications help you niche down? They might a little bit, right? Like they're gonna definitely give you, especially the ones that are really well done. And I mean, I thought Yoga Tune-Up was really, really good content, you know? They're going to give you uh, a perspective and an ability to articulate that perspective. And that could be really helpful for helping you figure out in your mind what it is you want to be doing and don't want to be doing. Finally, Sarah, can you think of any other pluses 
or minuses to certifications when compared to non-certifying continuing education opportunities? Well, I mean, I don't think this is an actual real bonus effect, but I think people mentally value them higher and therefore might enroll more likely in something if they're getting some sort of certification out of it, right? We're sort of programmed in a way to want that little piece of paper that says that you certified in blah, 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 or you, you know, now you're allowed to teach this kind of work or, or whatever it is. And the actual value of that is, is I think we've sort of proven or discussed over the past, however long this conversation's gone on for, questionable. And it's got so much more to do with how well do you take that information and absorb it and use it in your own work? Or is it something that was like so far beyond your understanding or so felt wasn't taught, especially while you had such a hard time with it that, you know, it, you just never end up using it. I mean, one of the things that we see happening a lot for, for all kinds of movement teachers is that they just take training after training after training, certification after certification after certification, and then don't end up actually using any of that on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Most recently I did this past year, a couple of courses that are rehab Pilates courses. Because I'm a physical therapist, I do not then have to submit a video of myself to get a rehab Pilates certification to for in order to be able to use what I learned in the clinic. If I wanted to call myself a rehab Pilates teacher, I would have to get the certification, but it doesn't matter because my prior uh, training like surpasses all everything, right? But that's a very specific circumstance. Well, no, I think that is the case though. You can't own movement. That, what that means is that when you go to a certification and you take their programming, right? Or you're, you take their classes and you're there the whole time and you learn to move in certain ways. And then you go and teach that. And, and you do that as a non-certified teacher of that proprietary, proprietary method. They can do absolutely nothing to you for doing that. Right. And like, so you could go and take like lift 100% of the movement you learn in a yoga certification or a animal flow certification, mm -hmm. not certify at all, start calling your classes something adjacent to that, not those, not those trademark names, but something else, and primal animals, right? Or whatever right, it is. Exactly. Teach exactly the same stuff. And they could do nothing legally to you because you can't own movement. Certs right. don't give you permission to teach the movement you learn from them. They may imply a trademark brand name, copyrighted manual, all of that, right? Right. So, and this is because, and we know this is true, there's precedent in the court for this because there was a, a landmark case known as the Bikram Yoga lawsuit in which Bikram Chowdhury, founder of Bikram Yoga and accused rapist, attempted to claim copyright and trademark protection for the specific sequence of yoga poses, and he argued that he had a legal right to control and license the use of this sequence. He attempted to sue various yoga studios and teachers for copyright and trademark infringement for using his yoga sequence, not, not his name, his yoga sequence. They would call it hot yoga. Their, their yoga studio would call hot yoga, but then they would teach this, the Bikram sequence in there, right? And um, he tried to sue them for using his yoga sequence without his authorization. And he lost this case. He sure did. The court's ruling essentially stated that yoga sequences, even if they were developed by an indiv individual, could not be copyrighted, right? Yeah. And thank 
God. Yeah. Because can you imagine if you were like just sitting in a particular position, like rabbit pose or something, you're just like hanging out and like someone could just sue you for that because that movement, someone owns that movement. Like, or you're teaching a yoga class and you have to say, okay, the sun salutation, this is from this training. Okay. Now warrior one, I got this from this other training. Okay. Now triangle pose is from this training. Okay. Now like, it just is well, like yeah, and this is so inane. No, no, this is perfect because one argument I've heard for why search sh should exist, like why you should be able to like own movement, for example, uh -huh. or like require that people say like, this movement is kin stretch or whatever, mm -hmm. is that if you didn't do that, people would just steal the ideas of these creators and use them as their own, right? Which would be stealing. And so certs are really aware to protect a way to protect the creator's intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who steal other people's ideas and don't give credit are jerks. Yes. I think when you're not a jerk and you got this idea from this very specific source, you, you credit that person. Like I said 100%. so many times in my like yoga works classes that like, this comes from yoga tune up. This comes from Joe Miller's work. I learned this from Joe Miller. Yeah. Right. And, or even if there's another teacher, like oh, I did this really fun sequence with, Jenny Cohen and I loved it. So, and this is, I kind of took it and ran with it. And this is what inspired this class, things like that. But you could also take the certification and then just put it in your class and lie about it. Like the certification in and of itself doesn't stop someone from being a jerk. So no. in, in my head, I, I made a little poem. It goes, don't get a cert, just don't be a jerk. <laughs> Give credit where credit is due. Yes, to I wrote that poem. body, to the individual <laughs> Right? Like, and, and do you have to do that for every single movement that you learn from well, every exactly. single course that you learn from? No, no. Exactly. But like, do it where it feels appropriate to do it and definitely give credit where credit is due. But the good news is that if you come into triangle pose in the middle of Fifth Avenue in New York City, no one's going to sue you because nobody no. owns triangle pose. This is, this is really about getting clear about what we're signing up for when we decide that we want to be a certified such and such a teacher. I think the best reason to get a certification is because it's really good content, which I think most of them are really. The famous ones probably really are because the people, again, like there's a reason people want to get CrossFit certs and there's a reason people want to get FRC and it's been put together in a way that's very smart. But um, understand that what you're probably m benefiting from the most is the community, is the opportunities to be a part of that community, whether it's an online Facebook pages, platforms, uh, free conferences, free continuing education programs, to, to remain under the influence of those thinkers and creators. I think that's a good reason to do it. I think the less good reasons to do it are that it gives you some type of credibility. It really doesn't Mm -mm. a lot of the time that it's going to protect you against lawsuit not really right that it that that you have to in order to teach the movement no you don't and i think once we have this clear in our mind as as teachers as independent entities we can potentially feel like we have more control and autonomy right that it's really up to us what we're doing with this we don't belong to anyone or anything right we uh, enter into partnerships, right? Creative partnerships, learning partnerships. Hopefully it feels that way with 
the people that you get in the room with, whether or not they're certifying you. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you make sure you complete at least 10 certs a year, plus get a doctorate in movement. Otherwise, you probably aren't any good at teaching movement. So uh, just kidding. Seriously, I hope you are um, dying of curiosity for the thing that you teach, that you're a continually devoted student of what you teach. And because when you are these things, when you are just blowing your own damn mind and constantly curious about the things that you are putting out there. I don't think there's any greater joy than being a teacher because it's just a constant state of creativity, discovery, connection, and learning. It's never boring. That's right. All right. You can check out our show notes for links to references we mentioned in this podcast. You can also visit the Movement Logic website. And finally, because this is the last episode of season three. We want to thank you so much for joining us and listening in to the episodes that we're putting out there. And if you feel so moved, it helps us out a lot. If you could subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and get in touch with us. Stay in touch with us. Let us know if you have any requests for future episodes, because guess what? Sarah and I are going back into episode planning mode where we're going to start thinking of ideas for next season's episodes, researching them. If you have something you want us to research and talk about more in depth, you can leave that in a review because then you, you do two things at once, or you can email us off our website um, or on social media. All right. See, See you next year. year.